First Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14 says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. When Paul says, or when God says through Paul, act like men, he obviously means something. Contrary to conventional views, the word man is not a meaningless word. And the question before this series of sermons is, what does it mean to act like men? What does it look like to act like men? So far, we have said that all men have been created by God in His image to humbly and lovingly lead in a God-glorifying direction by happily assuming sacrificial responsibility. And we've said to those of you men who are husbands, you are the covenant head of your marriage. And you are to love Jesus, you are to love your wife, you are to take responsibility for her, you are to provide for her, and you are to protect her. And then, once you are a husband, this is the next step in God's plan. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, God said. Children. God is talking about children. Multiply and fill the earth. But not just multiply. Be fruitful, God said. Be fruitful and multiply. That means that what God is looking for from godly husbands and wives is what he says in Malachi 2.15, godly offspring. God is after godly offspring, that a husband and wife would love him and they would look to populate heaven and not just populate earth. That's the goal. So, be a man, get help, and be fruitful. This is God's plan for men. Or become a man, find a wife, have children. That's what we have so far. And men who are here today, that is your bedrock calling. That is your bedrock calling. Christians are known especially today for asking, what is my calling? What has God called me to do? And usually that is trying to get at something other than what God has clearly called them to do. It typically gets to more what your dreams are, or what Proverbs might say your fantasies are. Men, God has made your calling very clear. And beyond this, it is unclear, though there may be things God calls you to. But He has called you to become a man, to find a wife, and to have children. 
it is not good for you to be alone. And God is also after godly offspring. So this is what you are called to, men. This is your bedrock calling. Unfortunately, this requires work and responsibility, this calling, which sons of Adam are prone to avoid. And so God's plan often gets turned upside down because a boy wants to sleep with a girl, but he does not want to work for her. If ungodly men have their way, they will build a culture that encourages this irresponsibility. If ungodly men have their way, they will even lead women to believe that this is actually the kind of world that they want to live in. If ungodly men have their way, it will be a world of abortion and no-fault divorce. If ungodly men have their way, it will be a society that turns sex, marriage, and children into three separate categories. It will be a culture that coins cute terms like hooking up, and reproductive freedom, because we all know things like rape and murder are wrong. And we would end up with a lot of procreation and very little fatherhood. And meanwhile, the father of lies looks on laughing. This morning, let's consider together manly fathers, godly fathers. And let me say this before I pray, and I'll say it again at the end. The point of this sermon is not to condemn you or discourage you. The point of this sermon is not to put a big pile of rocks on your back that feels unbearable. The point of this sermon, as always, is to drive you to Christ. The point of God's Word is to drive you to Christ. So as we talk about what a godly father is, and you hear it and you believe that you are doing well, then that should drive you to Christ in gratitude because it is glory to God that you are doing well in ways that you are doing well. If you hear this and it feels condemning and discouraging because of your failures, because you are not doing well, this also is to drive you to Christ where there is forgiveness, where there is grace, where there is help. So before we get into this and I preach the sermon, we should pray together. Would you please bow your heads with me?
Our Father in heaven, as we read your word this morning and consider what a godly father is, I pray for those men here who do not know you, that they would come to know you now and turn to you and stop relying on themselves and rely on you. I pray for those men who are here that do know you and will feel um, a burden and, and feel guilt and fear today. God, I pray that they would not be uh, condemned or discouraged, but that they would find forgiveness, grace, and help in your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So before we look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, I would like to say this. Men want children. And you live in a culture that does not want children, which is why we might want to say that. Men want children. Your wife is a gift from God, and children are also a gift from God. Psalm 127.3. So want them. You want gifts. Gifts are good things. You should want children. You should love and want the children that God has already gifted to you. And you should love and want the children that have not yet been gifted to you. You should want them. Here's the question. How many? Christians ask this question. Whoa, how many? You know, my wife and I have six kids, so some of you are concerned with where this answer is going to go. Because I remember thinking six was crazy. That's normal. So how many? Well, here's a simple rule of thumb. As many as your heart and home can hold. Which is probably more than you think. As many as your home and heart can hold. Husbands, give your wife, and I said this last week, give your wife a full closet, a full cupboard, and full arms. And by full arms, that means give your wife children. They are gifts. And the reason I say that is because there are wives who would love children or more children, and there are some husbands who say no for selfish reasons. Where will these gifts come from? That may sound like a silly question. We know the answer to that. Where will these gifts that God wants to give you where will they come from? Well, remember, there are different ways to pursue the gifts that you desire. There is procreation and there is adoption. Friends, do not assume that there is only one way that God means to add to your family. Especially today. 
in light of so much fatherlessness. God has one way, clearly, of bringing children into the world. But once they are here, they need hearts and homes to live in. So love children, want children, not just the children that are in your home tonight, but love children, want children so much that you want as many as your heart and your home can hold. Okay, Matthew chapter 3. Now that we want children. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. If you haven't already, would you please open your Bibles? Going to be two parts in this sermon. We'll be in Matthew 3 for the first part, and we'll be in Genesis chapter 2 for the second part. Here in these verses, Jesus is being baptized. Many of you have heard this before. He's beginning his public ministry. He is identifying from the very beginning with the sins of his people. And so he goes through with his baptism. And then after he is baptized, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends from heaven. And then God the Father, his Father, Jesus' Father, speaks from heaven. And what you have here is a picture of perfect fatherhood. Here is the Father and the Son. What would sinless fatherhood look like? And here it is. Verse 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Six things to see here. Number one, he was there. God the Father was there. He was present. He was not absent as his son began his public ministry. Number two, he was engaged. The Father was there. And he was engaged. He made his presence felt. How? By the sending of the Holy Spirit. He was not there and detached. He was not present but unavailable. He was present and engaged. Number three. He spoke up. The Father made his presence known by speaking. He said something. What did he say? Number four, he identified with his son. What did he say? This is my son. The father identified with his son. He verbally affirmed him. He is proud, this is good pride, to be associated with him. Number five, he expressed love for and to his son. This is my beloved son. The father expressed love for and to his son. And number six, he praised his son. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. The father 
praised his son. So God the Father was there. He was engaged. He spoke up. He identified with his son. He expressed love to his son. He praised his son. And he did all of this publicly. Fathers, this is a picture of fatherhood. A good father is there. A good father is engaged. A good father speaks up. A bad father is not present. He's absent. Or a bad father, if he has to be physically present, he is emotionally absent. He doesn't speak. And so he does not identify with and claim his children. He does not express his love to his children. And he does not praise his children. So what is God the Father doing? He is showing us what fathers should be like. With this picture of fatherhood, he's showing us fathers, dads. He's showing us what fathers should be like. And then godly fathers show their children what God the Father is like. So fathers are looking to God. I want to be that father. I'm that father to my children. And so now my children are learning not only what I look like, but they're learning what God the Father looks like. Therefore, here's the real tragedy of a bad father. A bad father is a liar. He is lying about who God is. He is lying about who God the Father is and what He is like. A bad father is telling his children that God the Father is disinterested. He's telling his children that God has better things to do. He's telling his children that God is content to make an occasional appearance. He's telling his children that God's love should go without saying, and he is not very proud of you. Fathers, if you want to be a manly father, if you want to be a godly father, this is your example. This is our example. This is what we need to imitate. Uh, to a degree, of course, we are going to imitate our earthly fathers. But foundationally, our fatherhood should be based on our heavenly fatherhood. Our perfect father. And so Ephesians 5.1 tells us to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So you hear that? You are dearly Loved children, imitate children, imitate your father. Be like him. So again, what does this picture of perfect fatherhood look like? Let me go through these six things again. They're so important. Fathers, be there. Unless providentially hindered, be there. That means there are times where something comes up. You're in a car accident. You miss your flight. You're sick. Unless providentially hindered, be there. 
be at the games, be at the plays, be at the recitals, be at dinner, and find out what is really important to your children. Some things will be more important to them than other things, and you won't know what those things are unless you talk with them. And then be there. Number two, when you are there, be engaged. This is not just being present. God the Father was and is present and engaged, and dads need to be present and engaged. Turn off your phone. Turn off your phone. Turn off the game. Get off the couch. It's not enough to just be a fixture in the home. But a godly father will be present and engaged. Number three, speak up. Speak up. Talk and listen. Ask questions. Tell stories. Say something about something. Yell at the game. Register your presence. I'm here. And everyone here is going to know that I'm here. Number four, identify with your children. That can happen at those games. That's my son. Have you ever been at a game and you know, you figure out who the kid's parents are. And you can learn a lot about those parents by how they interact with their kids at those games. Are they scolding them? Were they cheering for them? Identify with your children. Introduce them to people. That's what God the Father was doing. This is my son. My son. I'd like to introduce you to my son. I'd like to introduce you to my daughter. They are with me. They are mine. Identify with them. Number five, express your love for them. Now that means do not assume that your love goes without saying. And don't think silly things like if I tell them that I love them too much, it won't mean anything anymore. I show them my love. Well, that's good. But they weren't built to just have you tell them you love them. Or I'm sorry, to show them you love them. They were built to have you tell them you love them. They were given ears. And you were given a mouth. And they need to know that you love them. How many times have you heard someone say something like, well, I know my father loved me, but... What are they saying when they say that? They're saying, he never told me he loved me. Or he rarely told me he loved me. I figured it out over the years. Express your love to your children. And then finally, number six... Praise them. Tell your children you are proud of them and why. Praise your kids. Now, when it comes to praise, I'm not advocating the worship of your kids. When it comes to praise, it seems that parents sometimes go to one of two extremes here. One of two extremes. At one extreme, you have the parents of those 
kids on American Idol whose parents never told them they couldn't sing. So there was just sort of this baseless praise that wasn't really hooked to anything. You're just wonderful. You're amazing. And they, the parents probably should not have praised them in that way. Because their kids are flabbergasted and shocked that they can't sing. And everybody who's watching wants to never hear that again. So that's one extreme. But at the other extreme... You have parents who are critical of their kids' pictures from Sunday school. Like just withholding all praise. Your little daughter hands you a picture and you say, what is this? And she says, well, that's you, Daddy. And you look at her and say, you think my head looks like that? (laughs) You can do better. Get to work. Those are, those are two extremes. Find, find things to praise in your kids, fathers. Find things to praise. That should not be hard. This will not make them conceited. You want them to find joy in seeking the pleasure of others. You want them to find joy in seeking your pleasure so that they ultimately find joy in seeking God's pleasure. So be pleased with them. Tell them you're proud of them. Praise them over and over and over again and tell them why. Now, fathers, we move on to part two here. Once you are there, and you're engaged and you are speaking. What are you there engaged and speaking for? So let's go back to Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2. Here are Adam's marching orders, or men, these are our marching orders. We go back to Genesis chapter 2. What are we here for, fathers? Well, here's Adam in the garden. We'll look at verses 15, 16, and 17. And remember that Adam at this point is there alone. He is there alone. He is a, at this point, he's a future husband. He is a future father. But he's not a husband yet. He's not a father yet. And so what does God tell him to do? Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So man was told to work, keep, and obey. That's what God told the first man. Those were his marching orders. They are... Our marching orders, work, keep, and obey. Work. This word work means to dress, to cultivate, to tend, till, serve, which means that Adam was for providing. He was for providing. This Hebrew word for keep means to take care of, to watch, to preserve, 
which means that Adam was for protecting. So he was for providing and protecting. What was Adam supposed to provide for at this point? What was Adam supposed to protect at this point? What had God given him? The garden. And what was God about to give him? A wife and children or a garden within a garden. And Adam will be for husbands and fathers. You are for providing and protecting. You are for providing and protecting. He he is a worker and a keeper. He is a gardener and a guardian. He is a provider and a protector. Now let's ask ourselves, did Adam do what he was supposed to do? Did he provide? Did he protect? We could go forward to the very next chapter, chapter 3, and find out that he, he abdicated his responsibility. He stopped doing what he was supposed to do before he started doing what he was not supposed to do. So he, he disobeyed God in Genesis 3, 6. He, he did something he was not supposed to do by eating the forbidden fruit. But he had already disobeyed God by not providing and protecting his wife. So before he did something bad, he stopped doing something good. Sins of omission precede sins of commission. This is usually, if not always, how it works. Christians, and especially Christian men, they stop doing what they're supposed to be doing before they start doing what they're not supposed to be doing. People don't fall into sin. That's false. We don't just fall into sin. We lean into sin or we drift into sin for a long time and then finally we fall. This is not how it works. Godly husbands and fathers are not in worship and leading their family and reading the word and praying and communing with God and then all of a sudden life falls apart. That is not how it works. So fathers, you need to be vigilant. You cannot take your foot off the gas. You must do the good things that God has called you to do like provision and protection. So let's look at those more practically. First, let's look at provision. What does this mean to provide? Fathers, you are there to provide, not withhold. That's the opposite. To provide, not withhold. So first, that means that your instinct should be to say yes to your children. Your instinct should be to say yes. Your, your, mandate, your mandate is to give your children everything they need. But your instinct should be to give them everything they desire. I'm not saying you're going to give them everything they desire. But your instinct, a godly father's instinct, is to give his children everything they want. 
That's what you want to do. At the end of the day, you're going to give them what they need, and you're going to give them those things that they want that would be good for them. But your instinct is to give them what they want. Your heavenly Father wants to grant the desires of your heart. And a godly father wants to grant the desires of his children's hearts. Even a no from you is still a yes. So you want to help your kids to see this. So a no to candy at 8.45 p.m., that is a yes to a good night's sleep. That is a yes to mom and dad not sinning. A no to a ton of television is a yes to a developing imagination. A no to a short skirt is yes to their safety. So even the no, even the no is a yes to something else. Fathers, your no's should never be selfish or arbitrary. Never. Our no's should never be selfish. They should never be arbitrary. In other words, if you say no to playing catch with your son, you better have a really good reason. A really good reason. No, because I said so's will teach your kids to stop asking. They'll just stop asking. So you are always selflessly providing and never selfishly withholding. That is the goal. Douglas Wilson is fond of saying, offer a garden of yes with a tree of no in the middle of it. This is what God did with Adam. Yes, God said to Adam, this is all yours. Enjoy this, love this, take dominion over this. This is for you. And there's one tree in the middle of it, and that's the no tree. But a lot of parents... A lot of fathers can be a garden of no with one tree of yes, if you're good. So that's not it. So say yes, be jolly and cheerful, enjoy your kids, enjoy life with these gifts God has given you, if indeed God has given you a wife and children. Second, providing. This also means you will need to work. So that you can say yes. You will need to work. You will need to work smart and hard. It's not work smarter, not harder. It's both. You'll need to work smarter and harder. We said last week, if you weren't here, that wives are expensive. Children are also expensive. Children are expensive, which is okay, men, because you have actually been built to work. It's built into the design. God has built you to work. He has actually built you to enjoy your work. To enjoy your work. To enjoy it because it's hard. We have that backwards. 
I'll enjoy it if it's easy. I don't enjoy it if it's hard. And you're missing the point. No, you should enjoy that it's hard. This is good for you. Enjoy your work because it's hard and enjoy your work because it enables you to provide. So men with your jobs, be fulfilled in working hard to provide for your family. This gets back to that talk of dreams and fantasies and fulfillment. We say things like, are you fulfilled in your job? If you were to ask my dad, my dad passed away a long time ago, but if you were to ask him, he was born in 1927, didn't become a Christian until he was 50 years old, was in the workforce for many years. If you were to ask him, did you find, or his father, or his father's father, did you find fulfillment in your job? They would look at you like you were crazy. They would have no clue what you were talking about. What do you mean did I find fulfillment in my job? I did what I had to do to provide for my family. It's a means to a glorious end. So whatever it is, we work hard, we work smart, but our dream needs to be providing for our family. That needs to be our fantasy. That needs to be the dream that we're chasing. That needs to be how we are fulfilled in whatever it is that we do because we're fulfilling then our bedrock calling. And remember Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and he is worse than an unbeliever. Third, with provision, don't forget, this also means providing yourself. This means providing yourself. You've got to be there. You've got to be engaged. You need to provide love and affirmation and praise. You need to teach them. You need to give them spiritual food. You need to feed them God's word over and over and over and over So godly fathers, you must provide for your children. Adam was also told to keep, to guard, to protect. So fathers, you are called to, secondly, protect your family. What does it mean to protect our family? What does it look like to protect our family? Not just physically. Not just physically. For most men, I think that's a natural instinct to protect their children physically, but you'll need to protect them spiritually as well. Your children need spiritual protection. Remember, your children are body and souls. Protect them from physical harm, but fathers, you must also protect your children from spiritual harm. Protect them, this means, from lies. Protect them from wrong ideas. Protect them from secular worldviews and impurity and hypocrisy and things that will threaten to steal their heart and loyalty to you. Protect them from these things. A couple things. First, so this means that godly fathers will need to be able to spot the enemy. Godly fathers need to know 
who the enemies are. In other words, you need to know who to fight. Your wife is not the enemy. Your children are not the enemy. You are fiercely loyal to them. And you're not to fight with them. You are to fight for them. You need to know where the enemies are and how they plan to get into your kids' hearts. For example, we have a great enemy. We know this. God's enemy. And according to Peter, he is creeping around seeking to devour God's people. So we need to know that. He is an enemy. But he is not the only enemy. Satan is not the only enemy. ISIS is an enemy. And so is the teenage boy that would like to be alone with your daughter. No, really. He is an enemy. So we have to know who we're fighting against, and we have to know who we are protecting our children from. Colossians 3.2 says to set our minds on things above and not on things of the earth. Philippians 4.8 says to think about things that are true and honorable and good and lovely. And so we need to know where the enemies are and how they might be coming into our home. What is on TV? What is in the magazine? What is on the phone? What is on YouTube? Remember, godly fathers, you are a guardian. You are a sniper in the guard tower. I'm not saying that this means that you, you know, move up to the middle of nowhere in Idaho and you just cut your family off from everything and you get off the grid and that by hovering and monitoring your kids 24 hours a day that that will be for their good. That will probably go really bad. And we'll just hear about you on the news. But... To let these things in slowly and wisely and to teach your children how to understand them and how to interpret them and how to think about them. This is what a protector is doing as he understands who his enemies are. And then second, this also means you'll have to know how to fight. So not just who to fight and who the enemies are, but how do I wage this battle For example, if you have boys, please don't tell your boys that fighting is bad. Fighting is not bad. There is, I think, too much teaching boys that competing is bad and that fighting is bad and that winning is bad. All of those things are crucial and so important. And God has built boys this way and built men this way. It just needs direction. It needs harnessing, lots of harnessing, guidance, and channeling, which is what fathers are for. In Nehemiah chapter 4, if you haven't read Nehemiah chapter 4, it's, it's as close to the Bible gets to William Wallace in the movie Braveheart, or I should say that William Wallace in the movie Braveheart is as close as Hollywood gets to Nehemiah chapter 4. 
But in Nehemiah chapter 4, some Jews are seeking to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem that's been destroyed. And while they're doing that, there are enemies that are surrounding them that have committed themselves to murdering all of God's people to keep them from building this wall. And so then what happens? Nehemiah is there and he's sort of in charge. All these neighboring Jews are trying to get the Jews in the city, including Nehemiah, out. Like this is, you're outnumbered. This isn't looking good. You need to get out of there. And so Nehemiah in chapter 4, verse 14, he gets all the men and he tucks them behind the wall and he gives them a speech. And this is what he says in verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So fathers, do you know how to fight? Do you know what weapons to use? Do you know the tactics of the enemy? Just like you've been built to work, you've been built to fight, all of you, body and soul, and the Word of God is your primary weapon. And we need to know how to wield it. It is called the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6. It's described as a sword in Hebrews chapter 4. Godly fathers will need to know God's Word, need to abide in God's Word, and need to know how to pass God's Word on. This can be done in your family both formally and informally. It can be done formally through family devotions, for example. It can be done informally and certainly should be in a Deuteronomy 6. As you go, when you get up, when you go to bed, when you go to the store, when you drive to the game, when you're walking to school, when you're on vacation. Teaching. Teaching your children the Word of God. So in summary, fathers... Have fierce loyalty to your sons and daughters. That's the picture. That you would be fiercely loyal to your sons and your daughters. That your children would know this. That you would be especially for your daughters. That you would be a suspicious father. A suspicious father. The stakes are too high. So godly fathers, you have welcoming, inviting, tender eyes for your wife and children, but you have very narrow eyes for physical, sexual, and spiritual predators. And you spot them, and you protect. And your primary weapon is the word of God. So, godly fathers, there is going to be violence in your life. If you are passive, it will come on you, devastatingly. If you are proactive, you will come upon it. So you've got to pick the fight. You have to pick the fight. Remember, sin came into the world because Adam did not pick a fight. So in conclusion, first let me summarize what we've, what we've looked at so far. It's been a lot that we've packed in. Dads need to be there. 
Fathers need to be there. When you are there, you need to be engaged. When you are there and engaged, you need to speak. You must identify with your kids. You must express love to your kids and praise your kids. Provide for your kids and protect your children. It is all your responsibility and you should do it cheerfully. This should be seen as a blessing. It is not a burden. So let me come back now to what I said at the beginning. I wonder if some of you are discouraged or if you feel condemned. Maybe you feel discouraged because you have failed in some ways that have been made clear as we've looked at God's word. I hope you are not discouraged. I hope you're not discouraged. Don't just look back. You have to look up and you have to look forward. I hope you do see that things need to change. I hope that some of you men are convicted by these words, but that should drive you to Christ. The good news is that if you hear this kind of a call to fatherhood and you feel like a failure in some ways, that is actually good news because it is fathers like you that Jesus came for. So if you have this all together and you have this all dialed in and the sermon is one big pat on the back, then unfortunately that means that Jesus did not come for you. So there's a big negative side to that coin. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 2, 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus did not come for healthy fathers, but for sick fathers, which is what all of us are. We're unhealthy. We fail. We need help. We don't do this well all the time. But we don't do it well. We don't take responsibility for it the way that we should. We point fingers. We blame. We make excuses. We abdicate. We outsource our responsibility. We're tempted to do this. Which we should feel conviction, but not condemnation. Because it is for us that Christ came. Salvation, in other words, is a free gift of grace. Salvation is a free gift. That means that it cannot be earned. There is nothing you can do, including being the greatest father. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. There is nothing you can do to earn your salvation. You must not be a godly father to earn your salvation. You must not be a godly father to earn your children's salvation. The salvation of your kids will not be something that you earn because you are a great and manly and godly father. In Christ, all of us have been set free from condemnation. We're no longer condemned, which means, dads, that you can actually be a father not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude. 
for what Christ has done. As well, some of you might feel discouraged or even paralyzed because as we go through a sermon like this, you remember that this was not your father. This was not the father that you had. He wasn't there. He wasn't engaged. He didn't speak up. He didn't affirm you. He didn't express his love for you. He didn't praise you. And so there's a sense of discouragement when you hear what he should have been. Or maybe you're wondering what he could have been. That can be discouraging. This is all good news for the fatherless because it means you're not fatherless. Christ's father is your father. And the father that he is to the son that we looked at in Matthew chapter 3, he is that same father to you. Jesus is your elder brother. Those of you who are in Christ have been adopted into God's family, and you now sit at the same table with Jesus and God the Father at the head. You are his adopted sons and daughters. But there's no distinction now that you're at the table. Oh, here's Jesus, and then here's all the adopted sons and daughters. No. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. Everything that is his is yours. His gifts are your gifts. His inheritance is your inheritance. There's no distinction at this table. If you've been fatherless, you're actually not fatherless. All that God does, all that he was to Jesus in Matthew 3, he is to us. In Ephesians, for example, we learn that God is there for us, chapter 1, verse 3. That he makes his presence felt by the same spirit in us, chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 18. That he speaks to us and he claims us, chapter 1, 5. And he expresses love to us and he is pleased with us, Ephesians 2, 10, and 4, 1. So then finally for... Those of you fathers, what now? So what now? The answer is simple. Simple to understand, but not simple to do. This is a lot of things. What now? Well, the answer is do something. Do something. What do I do with this? What do I do with this conviction? What do I, I do with these areas that, that I, I know need attention? You should do something. It may be a quiet car ride home for some of you. As your family wonders what awkward ways you will apply this sermon. Uh, 
Oh, geez, Dad. What's he going to do now? It's going to be so awkward, so cheesy, so uncomfortable. Oh, we've said this before. Embrace the awkwardness. You know that awkwardness is not a sin. Some of you are thinking, thank God. I'm so awkward. Awkwardness is not a sin. Not doing something may be a sin. So do something. Try something. What could this look like? What might this look like? What do you need to say that you're not saying? Formally, informally, ask other men, ask other fathers, ask other husbands, what should I do? Read some books, what should I do? And then do something. Dads, be there. When you're there, be engaged. When you're there and engaged, speak. Identify with your children. Express your love to them. Praise them. Provide for them. Protect them. It is your responsibility. Do it cheerfully. It is a blessing and not a burden. Teach them. Model for them. Evangelize them. Instruct them. Pray for them. Discipline them. Mean what you say. The more like this we are, the closer we are to true fatherhood. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you take these words that we've studied, would you take these truths and plant them deeply in our hearts, and would you cause this now to grow? God, where our hearts need to be softened, would you soften them? Uh, Where our eyes and ears need to be opened, would you please open them? God, where there needs to be... uh, conviction. Would you please bring conviction? We ask that your word that you say is a sword would do its surgical work in our lives and in our hearts. Bring about the change that needs to be brought about for the sake of our own souls, for the soul of our wife, for the souls of our children. God, turn our hearts back to our kids and turn the hearts of our kids back to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.